We are going to Genesis chapter number 4, and I'm going to begin in verse number 1. Genesis chapter 4, verse number 1. The scripture says, Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. This would be a good message, does the Lord respect you? Does the Lord respect you? Do not do you respect the Lord. Does the Lord respect you? But I'm not preaching on that today. And it says, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you shall rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass that when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Today I was moved by the Holy Spirit to pivot from my prepared sermon and discuss the two evils that raise their heads again in an all too often way in our world in recent times, and that is one in Buffalo and then just the other day in Ivaldi. In Buffalo, you all know a white supremacist walked into a supermarket in a black community, opened fire, shot 13 people, killed 10. In Ivaldi, an 18-year-old walked into an elementary school, killed 21 people, 19 children, two teachers. And I just felt like the voice of the blood of these two mass murders, much like the blood of Abel, is crying out to us during times like this. And it's asking questions and causing conversations to resurface that seemingly have been discussed many, many times without sufficient action or answers. And many of the conversations are, are of course, over-politicized by people in power so that they can remain in power. And I'll leave those conversations to the world to have. But I thought that I would offer some scriptural answers to some of the questions that are going through our hearts and our minds as we see these things. And even getting to the point now in our world where even though we ask the questions, we seem to ask them less and less because sadly this is becoming our new normal and when things become our new normal we become sanitized to what is happening out there and we stop even focusing and addressing and answering those things but I felt moved of the Holy Spirit to talk about these things and so that is what we are going to do today let's pray father in the name of Jesus would you minister by your grace and by your power Would you, like only you can, speak to these issues in a biblical and balanced way? We pray in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. As the blood of those who lost their lives cries out to our lost world, many times we look for answers, answers to questions like why and how and what do we do to prevent these things from happening again? 
And, and when we ask these questions, a lot of times we ask the questions and, and, and we don't necessarily have answers. We want, we want other people to have the answers. We want other people to come up with the solutions, but, but we don't necessarily know what they are and, 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 and at least from a, from a worldly point of view. But, but I believe that the first murder in history perhaps offers some answers. And it's noteworthy to mention that when Cain killed Abel, there were no weapons. And I, and I don't say that to weigh in on the great gun debate because Again, I can leave all those political discussions for the world to have. But I say that because I believe there is a deeper issue that is at stake for what is happening in our world and sometimes on a mass scale and all too often. And God himself gives us the answer to this question of why and how and and, and what do we do to stop it in this story. Because in Genesis chapter number 4, look at the Lord's words, verse number 6. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And, 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 and what, why has your countenance fallen? And sometimes we ask, why are people disturbed and, and why are people seem like they are distressed to a point where they have, where they have no mental capacity anymore or they are mentally deranged? And, and notice what God goes on to say. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you and it, but you shall rule over it. In other words, there's a path past sin. But, but if you don't get, take that path past sin, sin is going to rule over you. And, and so what God is basically telling us is the answer to these tragic events that seemingly, uh, gets overlooked and overshadowed by the tragic events. The, the answer to what is behind the why that is often masked behind the murders and, and and the senseless killing and the hate that stays sneakingly in the shadows behind the suffering so it doesn't draw attention to itself because it doesn't want to be outed is this thing called sin. Sin is not cute. It's not harmless. It's not small. It is severe, and it is surely the reason for suffering. Sadly, we have sanitized sin in our world. We have called it missing the mark. We have explained it away by misusing and abusing the grace of God. We have made people feel comfortable practicing it. We have stripped it out of our preaching. We have decided that to talk about it would be to offend people, and God forbid we tell people that practicing this or that is wrong. And perhaps the reason why we've done all this is because none of us has mastered it. Yet all of us would find greater strength to overcome it if we had the courage to bring it out of the shadows. Yet still, and perhaps because of the weakness of our humanity and the ploy of the enemy, we have even gone so far as to redefine what is right and wrong, what is sin, so as to appease everyone, fulfilling the prophetic utterance of Isaiah chapter 5, verse number 20, when Isaiah said this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Perhaps Isaiah was speaking of a woe uh, that we have just experienced again. The bitter consequences of sin when it is sanitized, when it is made easy, when it is redefined for the masses. Such horrifying consequences as the two horrific evils that we saw replaying themselves in our world over and over again. What is sin? What is it? Sin is rebelling against God's standard. 
That's what Cain did. Cain did not want to bring God a first fruits offering. He decided that he was going to set the standard, even though God had made the standard clear, he was going to set it, and it was God's job to acquiesce to the standard that Cain set. That, my friends, is sin. Sin is when we decide that we get to set the standard, that we, we thumb our noses in the face of God, and in arrogance and in pride, we pull a Frank Sinatra, and we say, God, we're going to do it our way. And there's a little bit of Cain in each of us. Well, God, I think that that's too much. And, and, and well, I'm not really ready for that kind of commitment. Or, God, everyone else is doing it. It is culturally acceptable, and therefore so should I. Or worse yet, too bad, God. There are Christians, Christians, who literally will say, too bad, God, I'm not doing that. I'm not going with that. That is sin. It is saying, God, your standard is incorrect. Your standard is inachievable. Your standard is unfair. Your standard is unholy. Your standard goes against my likes. It goes against my dislikes. So I'm doing what I want anyway. Or to be able to ultimately be free of God's standard, there are a host of other, of other people who despite the mountain of evidence in favor of the existence of God choose to not believe in him so they don't have to hold themselves accountable to that standard sin it's the reason it's the reason for everything that we see it's rebelling against god's standard it is setting that standard of right and wrong ourselves and saying god acquiesce and in order to do this we have to override our conscience which god has created on the inside of us so that we would even know right and wrong this created consciousness of what is right and wrong is literally at work in the hearts of every person that is born. Sure, it comes alive even more, and I'll explain that in just a minute. It doesn't necessarily come alive, but there is a desire that goes with it when you become born again to want to please God. But there is this right and wrong acknowledgement on the inside. Romans chapter 2, verse number 14 says, When outsiders who have never heard of God's law follow it more or less by instinct... They confirm its truth by their obedience. They show that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but woven into the very fabric of our creation. There is something deep within that echoes God's yes and no, God's right and wrong. We instinctively, by virtue of creation, know right from wrong. Something on the inside tells us, oh, that's not right, or oh, that, that's okay. We feel it. And oftentimes what happens when we sin, I know this because I've practiced sin, like you, we sear our conscience to the point where we become comfortable with the sin, and then we ask ourselves, why, 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 why? Sin is the answer to the why question. But secondly, evil is the consequence. Again, notice the words of God to Cain and Cain's actions. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And by the way, what's amazing about people when they sin, and even if they're not ready to come to repentance, instead of dealing with the sin, what they do is they get mad at everybody else. I've just seen this at work. Even in the lives of, of people who you would think would never be. No matter how loving, no matter how restorative you are, when people don't want to just confess, when they don't say, I need help in this area, what they do is they start shooting at everybody else, blaming and deflecting the issue, which is sin. If you do well, will you not be accepted? God will say, listen, don't, don't, don't put an attitude on. 
Don't, don't, don't act like somebody did something to you. The reason for this is sin. If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you. In other words, sin doesn't want to just take a little bit. Sin wants to take all of it. Sin wants to rule your life and ruin your life. The old saying, sin will take you further than you want to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay. Cost you more than you're willing to pay. Sin lies at the door and it shall rule over you. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Now who knows what that conversation was like? Maybe that conversation was Abel saying, well, Cain, you know, you know this. You know you can't just bring God any old offering. You know you can't just give God a tip. You know God, you can't just give God your leftovers. You know ever since the beginning of time, and by the way, this is before the law, law, all of you people who are looking for an excuse not to do what God says is an area of your life, right? Ever since the beginning of time, God always said, bring the first fruits. You know this, Cain. And maybe Cain could not handle the truth. And so because he could not handle the truth, maybe they begin to war and to fight with one another. And Cain rose up against his brother and he killed him. When Cain chose to sin, to rebel against God's standard, the consequence was he did evil. Why? Because listen to me. Sin contaminates the heart. Sure, it contaminates some more outward and more outwardly warped ways than others, but nevertheless, it contaminates the heart. And when the heart of man becomes contaminated, the consequences are wicked and evil. The sin of Adam and Eve rebelling against God's standard of not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because they said, oh, that's not fair. We ought to have them all. God, we don't think you. By the way, whenever God tells you not to do something, God is not holding out on you. God is not trying to raid on your, run on our parade. God is trying to protect us. So they disobeyed. They rebelled against God's standard. They ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. By the way, we don't know whether it was an apple or not. The Bible never says apple. I saw a thing on Facebook, you know, it was trying to, in favor of guns, not in favor of guns, the wars that are going on in Facebook. And one person said, well, you know, uh, Cain rose up and killed Abel with a rock. God didn't remove all the rocks. No, he, it doesn't say he hit him with a rock. It's not in the Bible. So they just roll up and see what people do is they try to twist the word of God always. That's why we keep the political discussions outside the church, right? Because those don't get us anywhere. We get to the truth of what the word of God has to say in the situation, right? And so Adam and Eve, they rebel against God's standard by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then it passes down. Who's it passed down to? It passes down to Cain. And Cain rises up and he kills his brother Abel, he does evil because sin contaminates the heart, right? And by the time we get all the way to Noah's generation, look at what sin has done to the heart. Genesis chapter 6, verse number 5. Then the the Lord saw the wickedness of man that it was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. By the way, just aside, you, you know why... God destroyed the earth by flood, right? The reason why is because fornication corrupted the entire seed of humanity. The sons of God and the daughters of men intermarried, creating half-breeds of people. The only ones that remained righteous or untouched by it were Noah and his family. God was actually waiting as long as he could. With God is always long-suffering and withholding judgment. God is never quick to judge. And so God had to rescue the human race. Otherwise, the human race would have been extinct. And it happened through fornication. Fornication is nothing to play with, my friends. 
What do we think is happening in our world right now? The increase of fornication is the devil's playbook, just going over and over and over again. And by the time we come to the book of Genesis, to the generation of Noah, man's heart is entirely wicked because of the sin. Evil is the consequence of sin, which rots the heart of man. Jeremiah put it this way. Jeremiah 17, verse number 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And then, of course, Jesus himself says, from within, out of the heart of man, proceeds evil, thoughts, adulterers, fornications, murders. By the way, just because it's so prevalent in our society, fornication is not sex. We all understand, sex is clean. Sex is holy. Sex is God-ordained. Sex is one man, one woman in the confines of marriage. That's fine. Fornication is anything outside of that. Anything. Doesn't matter if you think, you know, well, this is normal, this isn't normal. Anything outside of that. And notice what it says. Out of the evilness in a man's heart proceed all these murderers. Comes out of evil. Why? Because sin contaminates the heart. Thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. What must be done to stop the evils that continually rear their ugly heads over and over again in the world? Yes, we must use wisdom, and yes, we must pray for our leaders so that they can legislate laws that check the evilness of a man's heart and make the consequences severe enough that man pauses before man acts. Yes, 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 we need that. But heart change cannot be legislated. It has to be intrinsically motivated. It has to come from within. How? This is the last point. It's going to take me a little bit, but this is where I want to stay, right? Jesus is the answer. Just like Isaiah prophesied about the days we are living in when he said right will be called wrong and wrong will be called right, another prophet foretold the promise to counteract the evil in man's heart. Ezekiel 36 verse 26 says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take away the heart of stone, the heart is re- that is re- resistant to the standard of God, and I will put in you a heart of flesh... And give you a heart of flesh, one that is pliable and open to the standard of God. The promise is then reiterated in the book of Hebrews as the writer discusses the difference between the legislative covenant of the Old Testament and the sovereignly sealed yet individually selected covenant of the New Testament. Meaning the Old Testament was God's law given to expose man's heart, but the New Testament was God's covenant given to change man's heart. Did you get that? The old covenant was God's covenant given to expose man's heart. The new covenant was given to change man's heart. The former was upheld from without, imposed through legislation. The latter is upheld from within. How? Because God has given us a new heart. Listen to the reiteration of Ezekiel's prophetic promise. Hebrews chapter 8 verse number 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind, watch this, and write them in their hearts. Intrinsic motivation. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Simply put, this new covenant will change man's heart from within instead of to trying to legislate it from without. The new covenant will deal with man's problem, sin, and consequently change man's evil within. How? 
by giving God man a heart that is sensitive to God's standards. It is dangerous when we as a Christian are not sensitive to God's standard. I'm not saying perfect. Listen, I'll be the first one to admit every once in a hundred years I sin. That was a joke. Come on, lighten up. Whenever you talk about sin, people shh, right? Not perfect, but it's dangerous when, when our heart is not at least sensitive to the standard of God. Where, where, where it's just, just easy, right? That's a dangerous place for us to be. This heart of flesh is what God wants to give us a sensitive heart instead of a heart of stone. What is the heart change called? It's called being born again. Listen to what the scripture says. Jesus famously had a conversation with a man who was a legislator of the law. Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee. What was he trying to do? He was trying to get man to change by legislating legal rules for them to follow over and over and over again. And so Jesus has this conversation with him. He asked Jesus, he says, what must I do to, to, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again. By the way, I love the illustration. God is so smart, right? Imagine you have to get your heart replaced, right? What happens when your heart comes out? They keep you alive on machines, right? Technically, you're dead. And then, boom, they put a new heart in you, and boom, you start pumping again. I'm just having fun. But your body has to accept that, right? In the same way, what happens is, is when, when we're born again, God puts his spirit on the inside of us. We become sensitive to the standards of God. But now our flesh has to accept that. And there's this war that then goes on in our body, right? Warring against our heart. Warring to accept the standard. Warring to, and we've got to feed that heart. We've got to feed that spirit so that it becomes strong enough so that the rest of us accepts the standard of God. Who are we? To say, God, your standard is not the one that we are living by. He says, unless a man be born again, cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, most assuredly, most assuredly means it's possible. I say to you, unless one is born of water, natural birth, and of the spirit, spiritual rebirth. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that which is born of the spirit is spirit. To be born again, we have to repent of our sins. Watch this. And submit to God's standard. When you become born again, what you're doing is you're saying, God, I bow my knee to your lordship. What does that mean when you bow your knee to the lordship of Jesus Christ? It's saying, I not only repent of my sins, I turn from them, but now I submit to your standard. You are the Lord. You get to call the shot. You get to make the rules. And my heart is now okay with that because I now have a heart that is sensitive to your standards. We forgot what it means to be born again. We think what it means is that we're going to heaven, but we still get to call the shots. That's fake born again. That's not real born again. When you become born again, you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, understanding he's the one who paid the price for your sins and my sins, and then you receive the Holy Spirit to live on the inside of you so that your heart can be changed and you no longer have a propensity to do evil, but now you have a desire and a willingness to want to please the Lord. Therefore, when one becomes born again, one's heart is filled with a love for God and the love of God, and therefore the lives of the very people he created and died for, whether they are black, white, 
white, red, brown, old, rich, young, whatever, etc., 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 because the love of God is shed abroad in your heart. You now want to please God and love your fellow man. How do we deal with the evil in the world? Yeah, we can legislate, and yeah, we can make it tough, and yeah, we can do all those kind of things, and that will curb it, right? But that's not going to stop it because man's heart is evil. Jesus is the answer. First Peter 2.24, he who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we having died to sins might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. When we become born again, we have a desire to live by God's right standards. We acquiesce. We submit. We surrender to the standard of God. How, how dare we? How dare we say, God, no, no. Who are we? Forgot. We are the created thing. Forgot that we have our life, our breath, our being because of him. We forgot every air we breathe in. It's because God is breathing out. In him we live and move and have our being. We forgot how dependent and thank God for his mercy and his grace. Otherwise, we'd all be dead. His righteousness. The answer is Jesus. The answer is Jesus. Only he can change the heart. Only he can heal the hate. Only he can restore the mind. Only he can make us whole. Only he can give us the inner strength to strive to live by God's holy standard. Only Jesus can help us to see what is truly right and wrong. Only Jesus can help us to overcome the madness. Jesus is the answer. And listen to me. If Jesus is the answer... I'm going to give you some things we can do for free that won't cost the nation one penny to change what we're seeing. Number one, can we put God back in schools? Can, can, we, can, we just, can we just invite him back in? We kick him out, and then stuff happens. We say, where was God? You kicked him out. Can we invite God back? Listen to me, the Nehemiah Institute, in full disclosure, these stats are a little out of date. But my guess is they are even more stunning and stark right now. For years, the Nehemiah Institute has been conducting worldview surveys of thousands of children from evangelical homes. You know what a worldview is, right? It's how you see the world. Do you see it from a secular worldview, a humanistic worldview, or a biblical worldview? And so they've been checking on kids that come from evangelical homes, right? Supposed to have a biblical worldview. Not surprisingly, the survey results indicate that Christian children, listen to me, and I'm not bashing anybody when I say this. I'm just giving you the report. Christian children in government schools develop a secular humanistic worldview, while children attending Christian schools develop a biblical worldview. In fact, the EMI Institute survey show that only 15% of children from evangelical homes in government-sponsored schools, which is public education, express a strong disagreement with moral relativism as compared to 75% of the children educated in Christian schools. Just telling you the facts. Don't hate me. This has nothing to do, by the way, with our teachers in public schools who are wonderful people, most of them. This has nothing to do with the families who send their kids who have evangelical homes to public schools. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the systemic brokenness of the systems. I know you all don't like to hear that word because most people don't understand what it means. Basically, what systemic means is the, is the way it's being ruled. What's happening behind the scenes? What's being mandated to the people who are supposed to execute and carry out certain things? What is baked into the systems, right? And so 75% from Christian schools, 
biblical worldview. 15% who go evangelical homes, public schools, have a unbiblical or a world secular worldview. The overwhelming majority of children from evangelical families leave the church within two years after they graduate from public high school. And only, and, and of those, only 9% of evangelical teens believe that there is any such thing as absolute moral truth. The numbers are just the opposite when it comes to children who graduate from Christian education. If you don't believe me, listen to the words of people who are a little bit more authoritative than me. How many believe, how many would love if your kid came home and said, I got into Yale? Come on. Seriously? You're going to stare at me like that, right? Oh, my kid went to Ivy League. Princeton, Harvard, right? My kid's going to an Ivy League. Well, listen. First of all, Martin Luther said this. He said, I'm afraid that schools will prove to be the great gates of hell unless they diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures, engraving them in the hearts of our youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which, in which men are not increasingly occupied with the Word of God must become corrupt. Timothy Dwight, who was he, president of Yale from 1795 to 1817. Here's what he said. This is not me. This is somebody of one of the premier institutions in all the world that started out biblically founded, by the way. He said, to commit our children to the care of irreligious people is to commit lambs to the superintendency of wolves. Let that just sink in for a minute. And I'm not saying this because we have a Christian school. Because I'm a byproduct of public education. I didn't go to Christian school. And I love Jesus with all my heart, but I'm in the 9%. Right? A.A. Hodge, principal of Princeton Seminary from 1823 to 1886. Here's what he said. He said, the U.S. school system will be the most efficient and widespread instrument for the propagation of atheism which the world has ever seen. Is it true? Yep, 100% true. Do you realize that if you go on campuses, especially college campuses these days, Do you realize what the kids are being pumped with these days? It is a secular, secular humanistic theology and point of view. Nicholas Murray Butler, between 1862 and 1947, he was the president of Columbia University. He said, we seem to forget that until 200 years ago, religious instruction everywhere dominated education. Religion guided education, shaped education, selected the material for education in every part of the world. Then particularly in this democracy of ours, a curious tendency grew up to exclude religious teaching together from education on the ground that such teaching was in conflict with our fundamental doctrine of separation of church and state. The result was to give paganism new importance and new influence. I'm I'm holding my tongue right now. I'm holding my tongue. Because I got the answer for a lot of y'all. For why the world is going this way. I got the answer for a lot of y'all why your kids ain't in church anymore. And I'm not saying that to get you. I'm saying that to wake you up. I'm saying it to get you to realize that you can't pump. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by whatever you hear. Hearing by the word of God, if it's in the word of God, and if you're hearing something else constantly and constantly and constantly and constantly, you're going to have faith in that particular thing. You need to work overtime. If your kids are getting pumped in some other theology somewhere else, and it is a theology, secular humanism is a theology. Where did the decline happen? Why have government-run schools become a breeding ground for secular worldviews and either atheism, agnosticism, or lukewarm faith at best? Why? In 1962, 
without citing any precedences whatsoever, the Supreme Court ruled to take prayer out of school and simply stated, without any historical or legal base, we'll not have prayers in school anymore. That violates the Constitution. Within 12 months, the court not only removed prayer, but also Bible reading, religious classes, religious instruction from all public schools, a radical reversal from America's history and foundation. For example, did you know the first textbook in America that was ever printed in 1690 was called the New England Primer? It began with the alphabet, teaching the kids the ABCs. Here's how they taught the kids the ABCs. Are you ready? A, a wise son makes the father glad, but a foolish son is the heaviness of his mother. Quoted scripture. B, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble therewith. Scripture. C, come on to Christ, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Scripture. D, do not the abominable thing which I hate, saith the Lord. Scripture. E, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Teaching the ABCs, hell, by memorizing Scripture. And what did the entire controversy off of taking prayer and God and religious activities and Bible reading out of school come from? A 22-word soft prayer. Not a hardcore prayer. Not even a prayer that mentioned Jesus. The 22-word prayer was this. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee, and we beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Can't say that anymore. You mentioned God. You're going to offend 3% of the population. So let's, let's cater to them. Can I ask you a question? Do we need God's blessing on us? Do we need it on our parents? Do we need it on our teachers? Do we need it on our country? How many more people have to die before we realize we need God's blessing? The four categories addressed in the prayer. Students, families, schools, and the nation. Here are some stats about the four categories since the removal of prayer from school. Students, prior to 1962, birth rates of unwed girls between 15 and 19, stable. Since that time, they've increased every year. For girls 10 to 14, they have increased, and these stats are out of date, probably more by now, 553%. You can understand, see, the world's trying to correct the problem. Let's give them condoms in school. That's their attempt because they don't know how to fix the problem. The problem's in the heart. It's not in the outside. It's in the heart. Got to change the heart. Got to put something on the inside that says I want to please God. Something on the inside that gives me the power to war against natural and unnatural affection. Got to put something on the inside that puts me in a position where I can win. One of the greatest evils of our world is that we don't put everybody in the same position to win. And when you are a Christian, you are positioned to win in life because of the truth of the word of God that you know. And when we steal that from people's heart, we put them at a disadvantage because you can't win a war against your flesh. You can't win a war against the devil without the word of God. The word of God is the tool by which you are able to win. Families, prior to 62, divorce rate was declining. But beginning in 63, and again, these stats are outdated, the divorce rate may not be as high anymore as it once was because now people don't get married, they just live together. And their reason, because we don't want to get divorced. Pathetic. No condemnation to people who are in that situation. By the way, 
any sinner is always welcome in this church. Doesn't matter what they're doing. They're going to be treated with the same love, everything, all that kind of stuff. I don't care what they do. I don't care what they're involved in. I don't care what they believe, right? But nowadays, here's what happens is that kids have been taught by what they've seen that this is going to end in divorce. So why should I get married? How pathetic. Why wouldn't they look and say, I want to get married. Look at how happy this is. Look at how wonderful this is. Look at how blessed this is, right? Prior to the 62, divorce rate was declining. Beginning of 63, it skyrocketed in between 63 and at the time when I pulled these stats, which was years ago, by the way, they had tripled. And the U.S. By, at that time was the number one in the world in divorce rate. Single-parent homes at that time were up 140%. Single-parent families with children up 160%. By the way, people were not meant, and, and listen to me, I say this, if it is the case, God makes up the difference. There is always grace for every situation. The best situation for every person, for every child, is to be raised by a mommy and a daddy. They need a mommy. They need a daddy. Mommies give them one thing. Daddies give them another thing. And both are needed to formulate this child in full. Unmarried couples living together are now at the time of this up 600%. It's probably even way, it's probably 6,000% now. Schools, beginning in 63, they plummeted. For an unprecedented 18 consecutive years in scores. Scores so low that the Department of Education stated in the first time in America's history that they would be graduating a generation of students who academically knew less than their parents. Do you know the only place that that's not true in? Private Christian schools. The only place. Who have way less funds. Oh boy, give me as much funds as the, as the, as the public school has to run our school, and forget about it. Forget about it even now. But this is what's happening, and we don't realize. How about our country? Since 1962, violent crime has surpassed the population growth by 794%, making the U.S. again the number one in this category. Perhaps this phenomenon is best explained by the inventor of our modern-day understanding of the separation of church and state, which his words were taken out of context, by the way, Thomas Jefferson. He said, the precepts of philosophy laid hold of action only. Philosophy tries to fix it on the outside, just like the law, fix it on the outside. But Jesus pushed his scrutinies into the heart of man, erected his tribunal in the region of his thoughts, and purified the waters at the fountainhead. Why? Put it in the heart. Can we please bring God back into school again? Guess, guess how much that cost? Zero. Just... Just let kids get up and say under God. Just let them do it. Let them, let them pray. I'm not even talking about having to pray to Jesus. Because I, I, we know he's God. But how about just making them aware that there is a God? How about let's, let's just start basic there. And listen to me. If your kids are in public schools, be a voice. Don't allow, don't just say, oh yeah, we don't believe in that. I know that's in the textbook, but we don't believe in that. No, go to your school board. Take this out of the book. This can't be here. Let's make some change. You gotta stand up. It starts with us. Let's not continue to turn a blind eye to these kind of things. Our kids are being fed to wolves right now. And it's not again even the people. It's the institutions that are behind it, that are doing all this. Can we bring God back into school again? But then number two, can we bring the Bible back as our standard? Can we, can we please stop with 
moral relativism. Your truth, my truth. I've said this before. Truth cannot have multiple facets to it. It can't be your truth and my truth. Truth, by virtue of its name, is truth for everybody. If what I say is truth and what you say is truth are different, one of us doesn't have the truth. See how crazy? The, the, the philosophers and the arguments of the day actually get into our head and we, we actually consider people to be smart who are actually deranged. Because they use big words. And we have, whoa, they're really smart. And they have PhDs by their name. Right? Can we bring the Bible back as a stand? No other book has been more scrutinized, criticized, researched, ridiculed, dissected, sliced, diced, banned, and burned. Kings and governments and emperors have tried to wipe it out, but it keeps on living. It's like the Energizer Bunny. It takes a lick and keeps on ticking. Why? It's got resurrection power in it. Why? Because the Word and our Jesus are one and the same. The Word and the Father. He's exalted His, his Word even above His name. His Word to Him. But what? It's got life in it. You can't kill it, even if you try. It's a great emperor in the Roman Empire, Diocletian. He made it his mission to wipe out the Bible. He issued royal edicts commanding that churches be leveled to the ground and that scriptures be destroyed by fire. And after two years, he boldly predicted and, and, and confessed. He said, I have completely exterminated the Christian writings from the face of the earth. By the way, how come we're not trying to, to, to exterminate other religious uh, writings from the earth? Why, why are we only, only attacking Christianity? You know the answer Why? Because it's the truth. The devil ain't afraid of the other stuff. Let that stuff get out there. Let that stuff be in people's minds and people's thoughts. But we got to stop this one. So did he succeed? Apparently not. Today there remains 25,000 copies of original manuscripts of the New Testament. And the New Testament alone has approximately 16,000 copies of original manuscripts. The earliest dating back to 50 AD. A mere 17 years from the events that they described. And yet we question the historicity, reliability, and accuracy of the Bible. You said, Pastor, 17 years? That's a long time. People can forget. Do you know that 17 years from a historical point of view when you deal with ancient manuscripts that far is like yesterday? Do you realize the next closest books to the Bible are hundreds of years original manuscripts? The Bible is the most historically reliable book in the history of the world by manuscript evidence, by dates uh, from which the, 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 the details describe. Blips in the radar. All right there, yet we hold it to a completely different standard than we hold every other thing that we believe in. We believe in Homer's Iliad. Right? We believe in that. We believe in the Trojan War. We believe in all these things that we, we talk about and we accept. And they were written in documents that have not nearly the kind of evidence that the Bible has. Famous philosopher uh, Voltaire. He held up a copy of the Bible one day, boldly predicted, he said, in a hundred years from now, the Bible will be forgotten and eliminated. Well, shortly after his death, Voltaire's private residence was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society, became the headquarters for the distribution of the Word of God all throughout the world. Don't mess with God. Theologian Bernard Ram said this. He said, a thousand times over, the death knell of the Bible has been sounded. The funeral procession formed. The inscription cut on the tombstone and the committal read. But somehow the corpse never stays put. Resurrection power. 
Perhaps Jesus knew what he was t- talking about when he said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. There is a war going on in our world for the word of God to make it obsolete because the enemy knows what we have in the word of God. We have words that are health to our flesh flesh and food to our soul. We have words that cleanse us when we get dirty and correct us when we are stray. We have words that remind us of who he is, who we are, and what is ours. We have words that strengthen our faith so that we can remain steadfast when hell comes to shake us. We have words that teach us right from wrong so we don't get confused by culture. We have words that train up our children so when they're old, they won't go astray. We have words that uphold truth in a world of relativism. We have words that renew our mind and feed our spirit. We have words that fill us our heart with hope. We have words that remind us of what truly matters in life. We have words that guide our step and light our path. We have words that calm our fears and cleanse our souls. We have words that direct us, keep us, comfort us, bring out the best of us. And watch this. We have words, David said, your word have I hidden in my heart so I won't sin against you. That's how you stop it. You get the word back into the heart of these kids. You get, you get the word back in the heart of the people who are teaching the kids so that the kids don't feel hopeless because of what they've seen and what they have in life. You, you give them an anchor that holds in the middle of their storm, something that corrects their brain when their brain tries to go on tilt. Words that create, correct, stop, and turn the evil in the heart. The story of Cain and Abel admittedly ends curious. Listen to the end of the story. Genesis chapter 4, verse number 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? By the way, you all know when God asks you a question, he doesn't need information, right? If God asks you a question, you, you know something's up. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like your mama asking you a question. You know when your mama asked you a question when you were young? It wasn't because she was looking for you to inform her. She was trying to let you know something is up. Where, where's Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. I don't know. Watch this. Check him, check him out. Am I my brother's keeper? Sarcastic with God. Sin will make you sarcastic. Sin will make you sarcastic. And by the way, you know what the answer to you, are you your brother's keeper is? Yes. Let me say it again. You know what the answer to are we, our brother's keeper? Yes. We, we, we should fight and stand with truth at all costs, especially when it affects our brother. Who is our brother? Right? In this context, everybody. Who is our neighbor? Remember Jesus was asked that question by the Pharisee who didn't want to be kind to somebody who was laying on the street? He said, well, who is my neighbor? Trying to catch Jesus. Everybody is your neighbor. If they're alive, they're your neighbor. Am I my brother's keeper? And God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has now opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond shall you be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, watch this, watch this. This is curious. My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I have hidden from your, I, I, I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord said, a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. This is curious. 
if I was God, I'd be like, yeah, they coming for you. Just like you got somebody else, they coming for you. First couple of times, they're going to miss just so you can suffer a little while. Then they're going to miss again just so maybe spend a little time in the hospital, a little time with a, with a missing leg, a little time with a missing, missing arm. We're just going to make you suffer this time. If I was God, if you were God, because there are a lot of Christians who want to throw people away when they sin and lock them in a prison to be punished for the rest of their life. But how many of you know I'm not God? How many of you are glad you're not God? Because we have a God that despite even the worst of our sin is a forgiving God. And this story ends curiously because it ends with God's mercy. Amazingly. See, to us, some sin is more severe than others. And I understand from a natural point of view, some is more than others. But to God, sin is sin. Here's why. Because of what it does to the heart of man. Nobody starts off with the big ones. Start off with the little ones. The heart becomes a little bit tainted and a little bit more tainted and a little bit more tainted and a little bit more tainted. And then the mind and the heart start working together. And the mind and the heart. And before you know it, you have the consummation of evil in a person's heart. Sin, according to God, is wretched, it's damnable, it's punishable with eternal separation from Him for all of eternity. But the message of the gospel is God forgives all sin, no matter how wretched it may be. But only if we ask forgiveness. Only if we submit to God's standards and surrender our life to Jesus Christ. And make no mistake about it, wretched sin does not get a pass. Indeed, it never has. Because Jesus on the cross paid the ultimate price as punishment for that wretched sin. He was whipped. He was beaten. He was crucified. He was separated from the Father. He paid the ultimate price. Sin is indeed punished. But God is a forgiving God. I named no sins publicly. In this message, except the ones that I read in the scripture. Because I didn't want anybody to feel like their sin was any different than anybody else's. Sin is wretched. It destroys your heart. And it destroys your eternity. And the question that God has for every single one of us in this place. Every single person that will be watching this from wherever you're watching from. Is do you need forgiveness for sin. And if you do, you don't have to be angry. All you need to do is bow your knee to Jesus Christ. Submit to his standard. Receive his payment for your sin. And God will give you a new heart. A heart that will want to please him. God can change your heart. How many of you know God can change your desires? I mean, God can change your desires. It's a whole story in the Bible about God changing a man's desires. Because you hear this all the time. Like, once you have a desire, you can never change the desire. Who said? He said, this is the lie that the world is telling us over and over again. A man by the name of Zacchaeus, you remember him? He had a desire to rip people off. He's a tax collector. He used to extort from people all the time. As soon as Jesus saved him, 
First thing out of his mouth was, Lord, I'm going to return to everybody four times as much as I stole from them. What happened? Desire changed. Why? Got a new heart. How do people get a new desire? Get a new heart. You got to be born again. When you're born again, you have a heart that says, God, I want to please you in every way. Does it mean your flesh will die immediately? No, your flesh will fight you. But that desire on the inside will be so much stronger than your flesh out on the outside. Do you need to be forgiven? Would you stand to your feet?